Our scripture reader today is John Borgen. Uh, he'll be reading Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. In honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and sprinkle what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you receive and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. But you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are not worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so we are in a series here on the, uh, these seven little letters that, that Jesus wrote <clears throat> to seven real churches uh, back in the first century through the hand of John, uh, contained in the book of, of Revelation. And um, these, these, are, these little, little letters are to real churches in real locations that had real pastors and real members and, and, and real congregations. Um, and there's also a sense in which uh, the number seven is on purpose, or at least it appears. The, the book of Revelation is packed full of, of, of imagery. Uh, and, and so a lot of scholars believe that the reason why Jesus picked seven churches is seven is the number of perfection or the number of completion. And so there's a sense in which if we took all seven letters and, and, and smushed them all together, uh, there would be a sense in which Jesus is saying, this is what I want for my church. This is collectively the picture. So he, he, cho he chose seven different churches that had different issues and different strengths and different challenges. But in, in a sense, if we took all seven and put them together, it'd be a very beautiful picture of what God wants his church to be. And so we are up to our fifth church, and today the church is uh, in, in a place called Sardis. Now, um, I'm going to approach today a little differently. Um, and, and the reason is, you know, if you've been around for the first four weeks, I've worked really hard to follow the pattern uh, that Jesus kind of follows over the course of these letters, where he starts off with a description of himself, and then he gives the church a commendation, uh, a, a pat on the back, something he celebrates and he's thankful for. Uh, then he turns his attention to some sort of a, a critique, and, and then there's a call, and, and all, all kinds of these, these different steps. Um, and so Jesus usually follows that pattern, but today is one of the times that Jesus breaks from the pattern. And since Jesus is breaking from the pattern, I'm breaking from the pattern too. And uh, we're going to uh, just, just maybe a little bit of a simpler uh, approach to this text. And so we're going to look at bad news, a glimmer of good news, and then really good news. Uh, each week, though, I have taken a second to try to say a little bit about the city in which this church is uh, located. And uh, as if, if you've been around, you know, the first three cities were kind of significant, a little bit more uh, kind of power players. Uh, last week, the city was maybe a little bit more uh, helpful to think of it as a blue collar town. Uh, maybe you could think of it as like a Pittsburgh uh, back in the day where the steel, uh, steel industry kind of was what the city was known for. 
as we look at the city Sardis, um, there, there's, there's two, two things that I'll just throw out real quick. It, it's not necessarily a very large city. It had a glorious past. It, it, there, there was some really significant moments in its history. Um, but it, it, had a, it had a wool industry, and so it, it, it was a garment manufacturer. It, it produced wool. And so you maybe noticed that in <clears throat> those six verses uh, that Jesus addresses to the church at Sardis, he talks about garments a few times. And it may be that he's referencing garments to tie back into the fact that uh, the wool industry uh, and garment uh, making of garments was part of the, the culture that they were exposed to. So that maybe resonated a little bit more. But the second thing about the history of Sardis that is, is quite, uh, quite significant is that apparently uh, Sardis was captured two different times in its history Uh, in the year 549 B.C. and in the year 218 B.C. And they were captured because their guards were not paying attention. Two different times in their history, their city was sacked because the the alarms didn't go off. The the guards weren't paying attention. Uh, one, one, One historian actually says it was because of a failure to watch. Complacency, apathy, lack of alertness, asleep. And it didn't happen once, it happened twice. And so as you think about what Jesus has to say to this church and some of the language that he's going to use with this church, it does seem like he might be playing off of uh, that history, kind of that embarrassing history of being asleep at the wheel, of lacking urgency or lacking uh, alertness, of having a level of apathy. I know those were hundreds of years apart, but it kind of feels like if your city got sacked because you, you didn't have good alert, you know, good alarms, you'd put in a good alarm system and it wouldn't happen a second time. And so for it happening twice in their history, it might be something that Jesus uh, is reflecting on as he critiques uh, this church. I told you we're not going to follow the same pattern as we followed in the previous weeks because Jesus doesn't. And one of the interesting things about Jesus' change of, uh, of order in this letter is that Jesus does not commend the church at Sardis for anything. Uh, Jesus has no commendation for this church. He, he doesn't point to a highlight. He doesn't point to some aspect of the way that they function as a church, which he's done with all the others. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it here. And so uh, it's a little bit of a, of a heavier, uh, heavier letter. Uh, If you've been around for the last few weeks, you know that each of these letters have their own sense of heaviness. But when Jesus looks at this church, uh, he actually doesn't commend it uh, for for, for anything. There is some good news, and so that's why we're going to start. First bad news, then a glimmer of good news, and then really good news. So if you look at the first couple verses of Revelation chapter 3, the the first verse starts off just like the other letters. uh, And to the angel of the church at Sardis write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have the reputation of being alive. Man, they are known as a church that is alive. Great reputation. Great reputation. They they have the reputation that every church wants to have. They, they, They have a church, you know, the community looks at them, the other churches look at them, and, you know, they're hearing comments. If you grew up in the church world, maybe you, maybe you could fill in these blanks. Maybe you know what the comments are. Man, the Spirit is really moving over there. The Lord is, is really at work in that church. God is blessing that church. That church is on fire for God. 
This is the kind of reputation that they had. It's the kind of reputation that churches, in a sense, rightfully long to have. Churches, every church that I know, wants to have the Spirit of God moving in its midst. Every church that I know wants to be on fire for the Lord. Every church I know wants to experience God's blessing upon them. And the church at Sardis, that's what was thought. That's the reputation. That's what the community looked at and, and, and assumed. They, they had all the, the programs. They had all the energy. They had all the headlines. But there's a problem. Jesus says you have a reputation for being alive. But that reputation is actually wrong. Your, your reputation is that you're alive, but you are dead. Based on Jesus' evaluation, all of those other comments don't pan out. They're not what's really going on. The reputation, the public understanding, the public uh, affirmation, it's, it's not right. Now, Jesus does not mean that they are literally dead. He means that their works are dead. And he goes on to say that he has not found their works complete, not complete in the eyes of God. And that word complete means full or, or whole. There's something going on with the activity that they're engaged in that is not whole. It's not full. There's something, it's, it's hollow. There's something that is missing. And he, you know, interestingly says, I don't find them complete in the eyes of God. So again, he's, he's pointing to this reality that he, he's recognizing the public has an opinion here. I get it. I, I, get the, I get the reputation. But I'm telling you, it's not complete in the eyes of God. There's something missing. They're not full. They're, there's something, there's, there's a hollowness. Jesus is telling this church that the outside looks good, but the inside is not good. And boy, this is a familiar teaching throughout the Bible. Uh, there's a, a passage in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 16 where, where uh, this is what is stated. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. If you were to read through the Old Testament prophets, you're going to see so many of the Old Testament prophets preach something like this to God's, na- God's people, the nation of Israel. Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, like, lots and lots and lots of the, the prophets give this kind of a critique to the people of Israel. And Isaiah's might be the starkest. In Isaiah chapter 1, in the very beginning of this big, huge, uh, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, it's, it's over 60 chapters, it's a ton of content. And Isaiah starts off in chapter 1 by revealing to the nation of Israel that God is tired of their worship. I'm weary of your worship. You're coming in here and you're doing all this stuff and you're acting out all the parts and you're saying all the things and you're doing all the fasts and I am tired of your worship. I am weary of your worship. And you can imagine how well that went over as Isaiah shared that with the, the Israelites. But in, in chapter 29, you know, he doesn't stop. Throughout the, throughout the book, he continues to critique the nature of the, of the worship of Israel. And in Isaiah 29, verse 13, he says, You draw near to me with your mouth and honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. 
And if you look at the whole context of, and all the content of, that, of Isaiah's communication, you could add, you draw near to me with your mouth, you honor me with your lips, you're active with your hands, you're active with your feet, but your heart is far from me. The reputation might be good. The videotape might be good. There's things that are happening that look good, but there's a problem. Come to the New Testament. Jesus, as he talks with the religious leaders of Israel, a group that we know of as the Pharisees, and we have, if you, if you grew up in the church, it's, it's typical to have a very, very low view of the Pharisees. But the, in, in the first century, nobody had a low view of this, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, were, were the religious leaders. They were honored and respected. They were the ones that everyone looked at and said, well, at least they have it together. Well, you know what Jesus says to the Pharisees? He, he says some of these very same things to the Pharisees. He says, you're like a cup. And the outside of the cup is washed so clean, but the inside of the cup is nasty. You're like a whitewashed tomb. The outside of the tomb is washed white, but inside it's toxic. Inside it's decaying. It's dead. Jesus says these very things to the religious leaders that were around in his day. Read Paul's letters. Read Peter, read James. They all are saying the same thing. It's a regular critique of religious people. It's a regular critique that the outside might look good, but the inside, boy, watch out. It's not what you think. You know, a lot of times we we look at the way that Jesus interacts with people who are far from God, with the, the, the sinners of the day or the outcasts of the day. And we see how Jesus often interacted with them with such tenderness. And, you know, part of you wonders, is it because the brokenness was obvious? The, the, the fact that they were a mess, it, was un, it couldn't hide it. It was, it was for everyone to see. And Jesus came alongside and said, this brokenness, I can do something about this brokenness. But when Jesus interacted with the religious, so often they had their brokenness all hidden. Their deficiencies, no no one could see them. And so Jesus had to actually, in a sense, reveal to them their brokenness. He had to reveal to them the problem that was going on. Jesus is telling this church, the church in Sardis, that the real point of evaluation is internal. That the way that Jesus is going to evaluate them as a church is internal. And Jesus says to them, remember what you have received. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But what I, the reason I want to bring it into point one is that while God's gifts are many, his greatest gift to his people is the indwelling spirit of God. And the spirit of God is how real growth happens. And it's almost like Jesus is looking at the church at Sardis, and when he says, remember what you've received, he's saying to them, do you remember that you've received the spirit? Don't you know that you have the Spirit? And to quote other parts of the Bible, it's like Jesus is saying, you need to be filled with that Spirit. He's in you, but the Bible uses this phrase to be filled with the Spirit. And that means to actually let your life be controlled, be guided, be empowered by the Spirit. So the Spirit is present in God's people, but the writers of the New Testament are often saying, now let that Spirit control you. 
Let that spirit rule you. Let that spirit guide you and empower you. In the first verse of this letter, Jesus uses the description of himself as one who holds the seven spirits in his hand. And that is very confusing because you say, what are the seven spirits? I know of one spirit, the Holy Spirit, but what are the seven spirits? Well, it's confusing, but most scholars believe that that is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And what, what the, if you go back to chapter 1, he uses the same language of the seven spirits. And what it seems to be saying is, when he talks about each of the churches, he talks about the spirit being with that church. And so there's a sense in which using the word seven is that idea of wholeness or completion. And it's talking about the singular spirit of God. And so when Jesus introduces himself to the church at Sardis, he wants them to see him as the guy who holds the spirit. As the guy who is, is the one who has the spirit who he wants to give to them, who he wants to pour out upon them. Now, language that surrounds the spirit in the New Testament is the language of the fruit, the fruit of the spirit. Galatians chapter 5 is a classic passage where uh, fruit of the spirit is, is listed out. I don't think it's meant to be an exhaustive list, but it is a list of the fruit of the spirit. Well, how do you know? How do, you, how do you know if what a church is doing or what you are doing is from the Spirit, if it's from the inside out, or if it's just all this external reputation building? How do you know? In 1 Samuel 16, I just read this. Man, he, his evaluation point, he looks on the outward appearance. that We can't know each other's hearts. We, we, I can't know what's going on in your heart. You can't know what's going on in my heart. Not really. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so guess what? It's shockingly easy to build a reputation. It's shockingly easy to pull the wool over on somebody's eyes because it's all we've got is the outward appearance. We make all kinds of assumptions about each other's hearts, about each other's motives, but we can't actually see it. God can. So how do you know? How do you know if it's from the inside out? How do you know if your life or this church or any church, how do you know if it's from the Spirit? Well, one way to think about it is to think about the difference between mechanical growth and organic growth. And I ran into this a few years ago, and it's been helpful for me to think about. If you think about mechanical growth, think about a pile of bricks, If you have a pile of bricks and you keep throwing more bricks on that pile, the pile is growing. The pile is is, is getting bigger. But it's not becoming more complex. It's not becoming more vital. It's not the way a child grows or a fruit tree grows. It's not internal. It's not alive. It's just what you might call mechanical growth. There's just more bricks. The pile is getting bigger, but it's just this brick on brick on brick. Now think about organic growth. An easy way to think about organic growth is like a tree. Its growth results in it getting stronger. Its growth results in it getting richer and more vital, even, even when it doesn't look like it. I mean, if we, we, our blinds are kind of down here, but if you could look out the window and see a tree, this time of year, Basically, every tree that's not a pine tree looks dead. No leaves, no fruit, no action, nothing. But you know what? Those trees are actually growing, even when it doesn't look like it. 
Even when there aren't any leaves, they're growing stronger. They're growing tougher. They're growing more mature. And in a, you know, hopefully less than two months, in, 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 a, in a few weeks, we're going to start to see buds on these trees. And we're going to see the evidence of the cycles of, of growth and birthing and fruitfulness. That, that, that's organic growth. There, there are more examples uh, of, of people, I mean, there's many examples of people who are very religious and they're religious for a long time and there's a lot of religious activity before they ever actually really see who Jesus is and come to saving faith. Uh, if you read the story of John Wesley, you would see this in John Wesley's life. Uh, maybe a more specific or more, um, uh, there's more detail is, is with, with Martin Luther from 500 years ago in Germany. Martin Luther was extremely religious. He worked for the church. He wrote books. Do, do you know that Martin Luther wrote commentaries on the scriptures? He taught the Bible. He gave, alms, he gave alms to the poor. He fed the hungry. He clothed the naked. He shared his faith. He did all kinds of good deeds. He was growing his record. You could say he was growing his resume, but he wasn't growing himself. By his own account, he wasn't even a Christian until years and years later. He had no recognition of a need for Jesus to actually rescue him and bring his heart to life. And yet all of that activity, what a resume Martin Luther had. And yet his heart was not alive. It was all mechanical growth. It was all external growth. The pile of bricks kept getting bigger and bigger. And everybody else looked and said, whoa, look at that resume. So much activity, so many good deeds. And yet Martin Luther himself says, my heart was dead. That wasn't the fruit of the Spirit. That wasn't internal organic growth. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, there's a, a passage that we, we read at weddings and we sometimes read at funerals and we often love, love this passage. Um, but it's kind of a frightening passage. Because while we love to read it, what's scary about 1 Corinthians 13 is that it's the place where Paul says, you know, you might know it, the part we read at funerals and weddings is, this is what love is. Love never fails. Love never, you know, once it's, you know, desires its own. Love is a sacrificial thing. But you know what else Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13? He says, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels. You, you, you can teach like nobody's business. You could preach the best sermon. You, you, could do, you could write the best book. You could know all the mysteries. You could even give yourself to be burned at the stake. You can give all your money away. He says you can do all of these things, but guess what? Every single one of them could be mechanical growth. Every single one of them could be external growth. He's talking about doing good things. He's talking about all these activities, many of them that Martin Luther did. Religious activity. And Paul's point is you can do all of that and end up with nothing if you don't have love. That's incredible. Paul says all the biggest activities you could imagine. And if it's external, if it's mechanical, if it's a pile of bricks, in the end, you have nothing. 
He says, love is patient, love is kind, love is courteous. He looks at the church at Corinth and he says, you have all of this mechanical growth, but you're rude. You're mean. You seek your own. You're selfish. And so, yeah, you're doing all kinds of activities, but your heart's not changed. You don't have self-control. Paul looks at this church and he says, I'm not telling you you're not a Christian. But he is saying it's possible that out of a desire to prove yourself or have a desire to impress other people or to be the certain kind of church in town, to get all this kind of reputation. In order to do all of that, that you've actually lost the heart of it. You see, it's possible to have the Spirit of God use your talents to change the lives of other people. And then you look in the mirror and you say, look, I'm growing. But it's not you that's growing. It's those people that are growing. Have you ever wondered? I mean, this, this, is, this is my life. So I think a lot about this. Do you ever wonder how it is that churches can be bearing so much good fruit while their leadership is a, is a train wreck? While their leaders are, are, are sinning against God in extremely overt ways? There are so many stories throughout history of this. But just in the, in the lifetimes of the people in this room, Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Mark Driscoll, Hillsong Church, bore incredible fruit, ministered for God in incredible ways that people's lives were changed. And yet these individuals, their leaders, they, they, they were in, in, in these situations where their hearts were growing colder and colder, where their actions were contrary to God's good design, and yet they were reaching millions of people. Why doesn't God shut that down? I don't know why he doesn't shut that down. But listen, we should never ever let fruit, external fruit, be some sort of proof of what's going on in the heart. It's not how it works. Those are the famous examples. There's local examples and there's millions more that we've never heard of. So don't miss what 1 Corinthians 13 is saying. And you know what? Jesus said the same thing. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, On the last day, there will be people who come up to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name through the power of the Spirit? And you know what Jesus' response to them is? Yeah, you did, but I never knew you. you, 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 you the Spirit used your gifts. And other people were changed, but you weren't changed. You, your heart wasn't soft. You, you didn't hear your own message. This is Martin Luther's story. Martin Luther wrote about the gospel and he missed the gospel for years and years. And it's possible that it's happening with you. It's, it's possible that it's happening at Sojourn Church. Look, reputations are fine. But make sure you do not believe your own press.
I find it interesting that compared to the other letters, there are no false teachers for Sardis. In the other letters, he points to the Nicolaitans, he points to Jezebel, he points to Balaam, he points to the synagogue of Satan. But with Sardis, Sardis is the problem. With Sardis, he says, it's, it's you. Here, here, we need to get out a mirror. You need to look into a mirror. That, that's, that's what's going on. Well, the bad news is not over. Jesus is going to come like a thief if they don't realize that they're dead. That's what he goes on to say later in the letter. He says, if, if you don't turn from this, I'm going to show up and it's going to feel like a thief. And you're not going to know at what time I'm coming against you. If they don't realize that they're living in their own power, if they don't realize that their hearts are empty, if they don't realize that they started to believe their own press, boy, the consequences are severe. Because I think we can agree, none of us want Jesus coming against us like a thief. It's not sound like a good situation. Well, as bad as that might sound, there's a glimmer of good news. You see a little bit of it in verse 2 and then in verses 3 and 4. All is not lost because there is a remnant. And the idea of a remnant runs throughout the Bible multiple times. And I don't have time to go into all the examples, but multiple times God's people are deeply discouraged or God's leader is deeply discouraged. And God will meet them and say, I know how discouraged you are, but let me just tell you something. There's a, there's a remnant. There's a remnant of faithful people. There's, a, there's, a, there's still a remnant. When we talked about Jezebel a couple weeks ago, Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah is incredibly discouraged, and God comes to him and says, no, Elijah, I know you think all is lost, but there's still 700 in, in Israel who have, not, who have not bowed a knee, who have not given in to the false gods. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament and into the New, this idea of a remnant shows up. In verse 4, Jesus says to them, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. There's still some. There's still some in this congregation. There's still some who are walking faithfully with Jesus. And so Jesus says, strengthen what remains. Strength, strengthen what remains. There, there, there's a sliver that's still in that church, and they're walking faithfully with Jesus. They have not bought their own press. They haven't fallen for all the hype. They're not just into the head count. They're actually trying to chase after Jesus, and Jesus looks at the church and says, strengthen what remains. But there's an urgency. He says, because it's about to die too. Verse 2 says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Jesus' point is this, don't ignore. Remnant, don't be lazy. Just like your city, Sardis, be alert. Wake up. Pay attention to what I'm saying to you. Don't let this happen. There's a, there's a remnant, but if it's ignored, it's going to die too. So what are we to do? Well, Jesus lists these five things, and I mentioned a couple of them already. Here's what he says. Wake up. So don't let the day slip by. Don't, don't ignore the stirring of God in your heart. Number two, strengthen what remains. Invest what you've got your heart, the people in your life. Don't waste time. Paul in one of his letters says, redeem the time. It means that every day is a gift. 
You know, sometimes Christians get a little worked up about the phrase carpe diem. I think there's a lot more that's biblical about that than we often think. Seize the day. You don't know if you have tomorrow. I don't know if I have tomorrow. I don't know how long the remnant's going to hang in there. Strengthen what remains. Third, remember what you have received and heard. I think he means what you've received. You've received the Spirit of God. And why did you receive the Spirit of God? Because you heard the gospel. Because you heard the good news about Jesus. And I think there's a sense here in which there's a call for the church. One scholar says for the church within the church. What he means is we got this building and there's all these people gathered in this building. But there's a church within the church. There's a called out group of people within within the bigger crowd. And it's like Jesus is looking at them and saying, remember what you've received and what you heard. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Then he says, keep it. Hold on to it. Follow it. Never forget. Never try to do it alone. And then repent. Repentance means to change your mind in a way that changes who you trust. So you see the situation and you have a change that recognizes, I'm not putting my hope in me and how I think we should do this. I'm putting my hope in Christ. And then what's the result of that? It changes the way you live your life. But there is a process. The change results in changing who you trust. You put your trust back in Christ and in his good way. And then it shows up in the actual way you live your life. If we were trying to identify what these five things, wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you've received and heard, keep it and repent, If we tried to identify what these five things look like, then I think Tim Keller uh, might help us. Uh, Tim Keller is my guy, so I think you all know that. If you don't, I highly recommend him, um, and uh, his books are usually on our book wall. Um, But he spent a lot of time, actually, over the course of his life, uh, studying and researching what is what you would call renewal or gospel revival, something he's invested a lot of time uh, and energy into. And uh, he he says this, there there are two widespread views of what revival is. The first view sees revival primarily as adding extraordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. So revival is when you see things like miracles or healings or visions. That's that's one view of revival. Second view of revival is, uh, think of like a vigorous season of meetings and evangelistic activity. So we're going to have seven straight nights of tent meetings. Anybody? Can I get an amen? Um, you know, we're, we're going to bring a revival preacher into town, and he's going to preach to us seven, seven nights in a row, and then we're going to do uh, you know, door-to-door evangelism on, on, uh, on the weekend. You know, something, something like that. In contrast to those, Tim Keller suggests that the activity of gospel revival or gospel renewal is the intensification of the normal operations of the Spirit. So conviction of sin, regeneration, sanctification, which means growing in holiness, and assurance, clarification on the message of the gospel, and that if you've trusted Christ, you've been rescued, you've been set free, you've been forgiven. So it's the normal operations And then how? Through ordinary means of grace. Things like the word of God being preached and taught, 
prayer, community, sacraments. And what I so appreciate about this uh, approach is there's actually a sense in which it's saying that historically, when you look at the, act, the activity that surrounds the revivals, that actually, in a sense, brings revival, it's not extraordinary. It's a commitment to the ordinary. It's actually saying, God, we're, we're going to let the things that you say you do, we're going to let them change us. We're going to let them get deeper. We're going to let them drive us, uh, get to a, uh, drive to a deeper place in our heart. And so things like conviction and regeneration and sanctification and assurance, those things are taught more and considered more and appropriated into our hearts. And how do we do it? Through the word of God, through prayer, through community, through the sacraments. That's the activity. And this is my favorite. He suggests, what's the evidence? What's the evidence of true gospel revival? And this is what he says. Here's the evidence. The evidence is that nominal Christians, that means Christians in name only. So there's, there's nothing going on in their heart, but they consider themselves a Christian. Nominal Christians come to faith for the first time. Sleepy Christians wake up and hardened skeptics get curious because they see the beauty. They see the beauty of the gospel they see the genuine, humble, servant-hearted, joyful Christians actually navigating the world. And it causes them to say, that's opposed to everything I know about Christianity. All of this public perception of Christians being the worst thing, of churches being the biggest problem, of hypocrisy and self-righteousness, that Christian is actually showing me something different. That church is actually showing me something different. Don't you long to see nominal Christians come to faith? Sleepy Christians waking up? Hardened skeptics getting curious? You know, on, on one hand, it might be a little dramatic to apply this directly to us, to Sojourn Church. Because God has been so kind to us over these years. And so many of you in this room are displaying beautiful fruit of, of repentance, generosity, faithfulness. But on the other hand, you know, Sardis had a good reputation too. Um, and so there are definitely some overlaps with us and with Sardis. Um, the, you know, the, last, the last three or four years have been extremely difficult for us as a church. Um, God's kindness and his faithfulness have caused us to navigate some of those hardships um, in, a, in a pretty amazing way. And I credit so many of you in this room with uh, our church's ability to do that, but it hasn't changed the fact that it's been very, very hard. And we want to have a sense of urgency. Um, when, when I see these, these words from Jesus, this call to, um, to strengthen what remains um, in a recognition that it's about to die, um, if you know me, I don't sit around and wring my hands. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a big worrier. I'm much more likely to take risks than I am to sit around and, and worry. Uh, and at the same time, I look, at, I look at this word from Jesus, and I recognize COVID revealed a lot of cracks in, in what Sojourn uh, was doing, how we were functioning as a church. I know it revealed cracks in a lot of other churches too, but it definitely showed us some of our problems, problems that existed before COVID ever came. 
And it put a, put a spotlight on some of those challenges. And so as we look to this next chapter, uh, I think I can speak for all of our elders and our staff that we are, we are giving everything we have to try to align Sojourn with God's design for his church. Not, not for the reputation of activity and size, headcount, bank accounts, but actual heart change, spiritual fruit, real growth, which sometimes is hard to measure. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, this is not a call to blindly support Sojourn's leadership. You know, I'm not Jesus. Please don't substitute our staff or our elders for Jesus. The letter to Sardis is from Jesus, and that, that rules the roost. But we are, as a church, going to work hard to lay out a pathway for us as a congregation to pursue Jesus in a more intentional way that, that, that tries to prioritize things like the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, prayer, community, the sacraments. These, these are things that we long to see uh, on fire uh, in the hearts and in lives of the people that attend this church. Uh, the call here is for all of us to wake up. It's not for you to wake up and start following your leaders. It's for all of us to wake up and do our part to wake up and to reorient ourselves to Christ and his mission uh, for, for his people. We want to see nominal Christians come to faith. We want to see sleepy Christians wake up. And we want to see hardened uh, cynics, uh, skeptics, um, get curious. It's our prayer for our church. We want to strengthen what remains. So that's the glimmer of good news. The, the really good news. The really good news. I want to visit this phrase, remember what you have received and heard. I do think that Jesus' primary point here is the receiving of the Spirit of God through the hearing of the message of the gospel. The good news about Jesus. The message that our sin is so bad that someone had to die for it. But not just anybody. The Son of God had to die for it. And yet, we are loved so our sin is worse than we think it is, but we are loved more than we could have ever imagined because the one who had to die wanted to die in order to rescue you back to the God of heaven. And as we consider this good gospel news, this message about Jesus, we are invited into a beauty that is worth a lifetime of trying to apply, worth a lifetime of trying to absorb and trying to, to, to grasp. I love the imagery of the gospel as a, as a swimming pool where one end is so shallow that anyone can get in it and the other end is so deep that you'll never be able to touch the bottom. This gospel news, this call to remember what you've heard is not just a one, two, three, like, oh yes, the gospel message, one, two, three. No, it's, it's remember the, what you've heard about Jesus, meaning your life is worth investing itself in this news about Jesus considering it all the time, preaching this gospel to yourself day after day. And what comes with that gospel? The indwelling spirit of God, what, the ultimate gift that you receive. This, this, good, this good news about this indwelling spirit, meaning you are never alone, meaning that you never have to navigate one single day in just your own power. The one who does this, the one who remembers the good news of the gospel, who lives by the Spirit of God, will be welcomed into the kingdom by Jesus. This is where this goes. 
This incredible gospel news ensures you a welcome into the kingdom. And as Jesus promises them, he, he makes reference to the garments, which I think might be a reference to, to Sardis uh, and the, the, uh, the wool industry there. But the promise that I want to point your attention to is he says that Jesus says he will confess your name before God. He will confess your name before God. You've received this gospel. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to confess your name before God. You know, in these six verses, the Greek word for name shows up six times. In verse one, when it says you have a reputation, that's the Greek word for name. Jesus looks at Sardis and says, you have a name in the community. It's just wrong. Later in verse four, he says, there's a few names left in your congregation. In verse five, he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And he says, I'll confess his name, your name, before the God of heaven. Who are you really? You know, Sardis had a name in the community, but that name was a fraud. It was a show. It was a mask. It was a charade. Jesus says, I can give you a real name. The realest you. The most you, you. Your truest identity. And that'll be written in the book of life. See, they, they had the reputation for being alive, but they were dead. Jesus says, I'm going to write your name in the book of life. Not dead, alive. That's the name. Your name will be confessed before God. You know, just as God declared over Jesus at Jesus' baptism, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. At the end, Jesus is going to say, this is my brother, this is my sister in whom I'm well pleased. I know them. I love them. Welcome home. This is what the gospel brings with it. This is the good news of Jesus' rescue of you. Have you heard that news? Don't lose the category. You might be Martin Luther. You may have been around this your whole life. And it's never actually sunk in. It's never gone from being external to being internal. Have you ever confessed Christ? Looking at this passage, there's no way for us to end it without asking, do you have any aspects of hypocrisy or deadness or ongoing sin in your life that you need to address? Maybe you're more in the category of a sleepy Christian your priorities, have just gotten, they've just gotten sideways. The way that you're using your time and your money and your relationships, they don't align with God's good design. Maybe it's time that you get serious about walking with Jesus. Do you need to see the beauty of Christ and what he's done? Do you need to get curious about that? Actually asking the question of maybe, maybe Jesus actually is who he said he is. Jesus, like every other letter, includes the language. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. As we come to the table, it's important to remember, Jesus instituted this meal, the breaking of bread and the cup. And you know why he said he did it? One of the reasons? To remember. So when Jesus looks at Sardis and he says, remember, as you come to the table today, it's an invitation for you to remember. You are welcome to the table. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are welcome to the table. On the last day, Jesus is going to confess your name before the God of heaven. On this day, you are welcomed 
to the table. Remember, if you've never received Christ, man, don't come get the bread. Stay in your seat and receive Christ. There will be prayers on the screen and in your bulletin. Uh, There will be a prayer team. They have little lanyards uh, around their neck. Uh, They would love to pray with you this morning. Uh, If our servers would please come, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for this table. We thank you for this bread and this cup. We thank you for what they represent, for what they invite us into, for this uh, call, this invitation to, to remember what Jesus has done on our behalf, what we have heard, what we have received. So God, as we come and take the bread and take the cup, would you, would you, would you help us? Would, would you allow these truths to sink to a new level, to a, to a deeper part of our hearts, a part that hasn't been touched before, a part of us that hasn't been changed before? God, my guess is that <clears throat> almost everyone in this room longs to have organic growth, not mechanical growth. They, they want you to be at work in them in, in, in significant ways. God, thank you for the roadmap forward to double down on being in your word, being in prayer, being in community, investing ourselves in, 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 in the table and baptism. God, we, we thank you for these great gifts that you have given us, ways that we know you and are formed by you. We thank you for this bread and this cup. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.